Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John Ortberg tells his true story in one of his books. He writes, a friend of mine used to work as a denominational official in Minnesota. One of his jobs was to travel to rural communities where they didn't have churches to do funerals. He would go out with the undertaker and they would drive together in the undertaker's hearse. One time they were on their way back from a funeral and my friend was feeling quite tired. He decided he would take a nap. Since they were in a hearse, he thought, well, I'll just lie down in the back of the hearse. The guy who was driving the hearse pulled up into a service station because he was running low on gas. The service station attendant was filling up the tank, but he was kind of freaked out because there was a body stretched out in the back. But while he was filling up the tank, my friend woke up, opened his eyes, knocked on the window, and waved at the attendant. (laughs) My friend said he never saw anybody run so fast in his entire life. Ortborg adds, when people see life where they were expecting death, they start running. On the third day, everything changed. Where everybody thought they were just going to see death, there was life, and that shook things up. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. After the third day, as a matter of historical record, his followers who were shattered, disillusioned, and heartsick following the crucifixion went out to face all kinds of difficulties and suffering and imprisonment and even martyrdom. And they spread the word because they believed they had seen life where they were expecting death. Welcome back to John chapter 20. Look at verse 11 with us. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping as she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. As we looked at last week, the combined gospel accounts shows the followers of Jesus in a state of chaos the morning of his resurrection. They were scrambling around trying to piece together random bits of information, trying to make sense of what one had seen and another had heard. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene returned to the empty tomb and sat down weeping. Everyone had went back home, but Mary alone returns to the one that she loved. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, love always endures. When others give up or lose their passion, true love continues on in loving endurance. But now here we have two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet. Of course, the picture is of the Ark of the Covenant with Jesus as the eternal mercy seat. In Leviticus 16, it's prescribed that on one day of each year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to enter in. And what did the high priest do on the Day of Atonement? He went through the veil into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the lid, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the two-by-three-foot box that held the Ten Commandments. If he were defiled in any way, He would stay in that place as a dead man and would have to be pulled out later by a rope. But if he wasn't defiled, 
he would walk out into the courtyard of the temple to the jubilant cries of the people who knew that they were forgiven for another year. In the same way, here, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is inside the tomb. Would he emerge? Did the sacrifice work? Are we really free? Only if he came out among the people as he had prophesied, could there truly be any celebration, and could we know that our sins are forgiven, not just for a year, but for eternity? And thank God, he did come out of that tomb. His resurrection was a divine affirmation of his atonement accomplished at the cross. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he declared that he was completely satisfied or propitiated by the sacrifice of Christ and had accepted in payment as full for the sins of his people. And it completely satisfied the demands of his holy justice. Jesus was, Paul wrote, delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Tory said this, When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. When he arose, he rose as my representative, and I arose in him. When he ascended up on high and took his place at the right hand of the Father in the glory, he ascended as my representative, and I ascended in him. And today I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher of the risen and ascended Lord, and I know the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins are. Next verse, please. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. These have to be male angels. Because any man who asks a woman why she is crying is just setting themselves up for trouble. <laughs> You're going to get one of two responses from her. The first response is this. Well, if you don't know, then I'm not going to tell you. Or the other response is, she will provide you with a step-by-step -step reason why she is crying, and it's usually your fault. But please notice that Mary turned away from the angels. Now, you and I would probably would have stared at the angels, taken selfies with them, and been caught up with all kind of dialogue with them. But not Mary. She was more concerned about what she thought was the dead corpse of Christ than the living presence of the angels. So the question we ask is, why didn't she recognize Jesus? Probably for a couple of reasons. One, it was still very early in the morning and the tomb had no kind of artificial lighting. And two, it's hard to see when you're looking through tear-filled eyes. But all that is about to change. 
I would like to say that there are certain things that are missed by dry eyes. There are spiritual realities that can only be seen through wet eyes. Another verse comes to mind here, though, Psalm 30, verse 5, which reminds us that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Verse 15, please. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. The first thing I want to look at is the last thing that she said. Sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him away. In other words, I will bear him up. Mary's request for the body of Jesus probably made in the same spirit as Joseph and Nicodemus. She wanted nothing more than just to be able to bury her master with dignity and then to try to get on with putting the pieces of her life back together. And so she offers to bear him away. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love bears all things. And isn't that what love really is? She doesn't even consider the fact that even if Jesus only weighed 170 pounds, how she would possibly be able to carry him 10 yards, much less any further. But love doesn't ask those kinds of questions. Love overlooks what seems to be difficult or even impossible for the sake of that self-same love. So now Jesus himself is talking to her, and she doesn't even realize it. In those moments when we feel betrayed by friends or by life itself, we must remember at that time that Christ's presence is not dependent on our perception of him. He is among us even when we cannot see him and even when our grief distorts reality. There are times of darkness and sadness that make us wonder how we can live another day. And as for God, he sometimes seems far away, uninterested, or absent. Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. And what is a garden? A garden is a place to cultivate and grow living things. A few days before his crucifixion, Jesus had said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. So we see the first seed raised by God in the garden of the resurrection became the gardener. So when Mary Magdalene supposed him to be the gardener, in a way she was exactly right. Jesus is now the gardener of the resurrection and is cultivating new life in all who will believe in him. The first Adam was a gardener who failed in his task and the world became a wasteland of misery and of sin. But the last Adam will succeed in his task, and Christ will restore the ruined garden that mankind lost in Eden. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. As I said, it's still early in the morning. Maybe it's twilight. 
Maybe that's why she doesn't see and understand who he is, and so she keeps weeping. Most English translations say something like that. But the actual language for the word weeping or crying is that she was wailing. She is weeping and wailing in a way that only Middle Eastern women can do. She is out of control with grief and panic. He is gone, and they have taken him away. And I can't even visit his grave anymore. She is sobbing. Maybe it's a veil of tears. Maybe it's the veil of emotion. Maybe it's twilight when Jesus asks her why she is crying. But for whatever reason, she doesn't recognize him until he says that one word, Mary. No one ever said her name like that. All he had to do was speak her name and Mary immediately recognized him. Later she probably remembered him saying, My sheep know my voice. And I call them by name. In a flash, she responds, Rabboni. She falls at his feet, clinging to him, determined to never let him go. Mary will leave that garden a different woman. Her sorrow has vanished as thoroughly as the darkness in a sun-drenched room. Her grief now is a distant memory. Her beloved, who was dead, is now alive. And knows her by name. We should not miss at this juncture the implication that God's priorities are not the same as ours. What do I mean? We would have expected Jesus' first appearance to have been with one or more of the apostles. Or if it was a woman, then surely his mother. But the Lord's appearance to Mary symbolizes his special love and faithfulness to all believers, no matter how seemingly insignificant they may seem to be. It is significant that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ were believing women. Because you see, among the Jews of that day, the testimony of women was not held in high regard. It is better that the words of the law be burned, said the rabbis, than be delivered to a woman. But these Christian women had a greater message than that of the law, for they knew that their Savior was alive. Mary was not a prominent figure in the gospel accounts before the crucifixion. She only appeared as a name in the list of the women who traveled with Jesus and the apostles. Now, some people think she was the Mary who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, but there's really no proof for that. There were many Marys during that time. Yet the Lord chose first to appear to her, a woman, as he had first declared his Messiahship back in John 4 to the woman at the well. Isn't that amazing? The most cataclysmic and wonderful event of all time has just happened. The Son of God, the long-predicted Messiah, has given His life upon a cross. He has taken the penalty of our sins upon Himself. Now that He has taken and paid that penalty to show that it is now done, He rises from the dead. And the first one He speaks to is the one that the others won't even listen to. He speaks to Mary, a woman. Now, I personally am not of the persuasion of those men who say the only reason he told a woman is because he knew that by doing this, the word was going to get out quickly 
and spread rapidly. I've even heard men say there won't be any women in heaven because in Revelation 8, there's supposed to be silence for a half an hour. I just want to go on record saying that uh, I don't believe that. But there is something else I want us to see. Sometimes what we think is the gardener actually might be the Lord. What do I mean? It is very noteworthy that here, as in the other three Gospels, Christ first appears to the woman, Mary Magdalene. He doesn't first appear to an apostle, nor to the great in society or in the church, but to that particular woman. Christ appeared first to one who in the culture of that time was oppressed and a woman who had known great sin. What a great comfort it should be to us that Christ always comes to the poor in spirit first. Why did Jesus say once, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That truth, my friends, will never change. Jesus comes to the unexpected person at the unexpected time and in the unexpected place. And in the same way, sometimes the Lord will come to you through a brother or sister, through a family or friend. But so often, like Mary, our eyes are so filled with tears that we do not recognize that it is really the Lord speaking to us through them. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. The first thing we need to look at is what seems like a contradiction. Jesus tells Mary he has not yet ascended to the Father, but while on the cross, Jesus told the one beside him that, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So how do we reconcile that? We first need to keep in mind that when Jesus died, his spirit went to be with the Father, as did the believing man on the cross next to him. But his body remained in that tomb for three days. Plus, I think the context here is important. Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. That word ascend in the Greek indicates something Jesus was in the process of doing. And although it would not be completed until after 40 days after the resurrection. He remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection and often appeared to the believers to teach them spiritual truth. And so, Mary had no need to panic. This was not her last nor her final meeting with the Lord. But Mary was so overwhelmed with relief. Suppose she had her Lord back in the same manner as before. She embraced him and held, him on, and held on to him as though letting him go would cause her to lose him again. And so she would not stop clinging to him. For all you Star Trek fans, Mary was the first Klingon. I'm sorry. She clung to his feet like a child who fears the departure of a parent. 
Now that she has found him, she does not want to let him go. Now, there was nothing sinful in Mary's clinging to Jesus as later he would be touched. And he even challenged his disciples, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. Thomas was even invited to touch the nail prints in his hand. But for now, Jesus says, don't do that. He was in effect saying, you will see me again, for I have not yet ascended unto the Father. Don't think you're going to lose me because I will be with you for the next 40 days. No need to panic. Yes, it was the same Jesus, but the nature of the relationship is going to change. Not only that, when people cling, they can't fulfill their responsibilities. We talk about people being clingy as though they're wrapped around their own self-interest. They're not able to do the things that they are supposed to do. But Jesus has something for Mary to do. He is saying, Mary, don't cling to me here. Instead, go and tell my disciples that I am alive. You have to wonder, how did Mary feel at that moment? She has been on an emotional roller coaster for days. And now she was deliriously at the top. So off she went on another cross-country run to the disciples who are living in fear, locked up in a room, which we will look at next week. Jesus reassured Mary that she would see him again as he had not yet ascended. He instructed her to give that same message to his other followers. However, that message confirmed two truths. First, his physical presence on earth was temporary, before long, he would ascend and take his place in glory. And secondly, his relationship with his followers are going to change. Mary's physical clinging would have to give way to another kind of bond, another kind of clinging, and that is the relationship by faith. Also notice that for the first time, the disciples, who had been referred to as friends, are now called Christ's brethren. It was through his work on the redemption of the cross that this new relationship with him has been made possible. Now please also observe our Lord never uses the phrase our Father and our God. His relationship to the Father was different from that of the disciples and he was careful to make that distinction. We say our Father and our God because all believers belong to the same family and have an equal standing before God. But he reminded Mary and the other believers that God was their father and that he would be with the father in heaven after his ascension. In his upper room message, he taught them that he would return to the father so that the spirit might come to them. After the ascension, Jesus was taken to heaven and then sent the person of the Holy Spirit so that he now indwells all of his people simultaneously. That means he, has, he is as much with us as he ever was with Mary. We are told in Romans 8 9, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. But we, like her, have to understand that Christ's presence is not dependent on the location of his physical body. She had to be weaned from the notion that physical contact superseded the spiritual connection. She and the other believers still had a great deal to learn about this new state of glory as they still wanted to relate to him as they had done during the years of his ministry before the cross. But still, I can't imagine 
how hard it must have been for Mary to stop clinging and leave the Lord behind. Some of you recognize what it would mean for Mary to be separated from the one who had given her life meaning, acceptance, and significance. Other than a handful of people that morning, everyone else that had followed Jesus were in a state of abject hopelessness because, as far as they were concerned, their God had died. They had possessed such great hopes, yet all these had been dashed to pieces by the crucifixion. The great example of the death of hope in this is a statement of the Emmaus disciples found in Luke 24:21. though it was, of course, true of them all at this point. Like the others, those two disciples had looked for the dawning of Messiah's reign upon earth. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah, so they had followed him looking for a place in his kingdom. But now, the inconceivable had happened. Jesus had died, and their hopes had died with him. So clouded were their minds by disappointment that they did not even recognize the Lord when he drew near them on the Emmaus way. He asked what they had been talking about and why they were sad. They answered, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know these things that have happened in these days? Jesus said, What things? They answered about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, hoped, past tense, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. It is a little humorous that they ask Jesus if he's the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on. Actually, he knows better than everybody. But in that walk... Is that not a picture of the heart of Christ? Jesus walking with the disillusioned even as they are walking away from him. What am I trying to get at? Most of us in here have lived long enough to realize that earth stuff can never be enough to satisfy our souls and to give our lives a sense of destiny. And the hunger for something more is intensified every time we do reach a goal we thought would make us fulfilled, only to discover that we are still hungry. A few years ago, Ken Hatfield spoke at a Billy Graham crusade. In 1964, Hatfield had played for Arkansas when they beat Nebraska for the national championship. He told of how he picked up the newspaper the next morning after the game and read the headline that he had always dreamed of. It said, Arkansas, number one. He then told the crowd, At the moment of my greatest achievement, I was so depressed. What he said next is revealing. He said, My God had died. Isn't that how it is? Today's front page star will be tomorrow's page 21 footnote. One unsettling word hangs over all the worldly things that give our life some sense of satisfaction, and that word is temporary. No championship, no relationship, no ownership 
can fully satisfy our God-given hunger for something that will make us great forever. But here's the great thing. Our sick and tired of the status quo feelings can be the magnet drawing us towards the greater greatness for which we were created. Our restlessness might be an actually a holy discontentment. In fact, it is likely that God is the one who has made us restless. The Bible says of the wandering Israelites, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. Did you see that? God made them to hunger so that He and He alone could be their only source of satisfaction. This morning, He may be stirring up the same type of appetite in you. Because what he wants you to hunger for is that which only he can provide. The stirring inside of you may be a spiritual summons to a destiny that can make the rest of your years the best of your years. As we finish up today, in Marburg, Germany, there's a burial crypt that has two layers. On the top, a knight is dressed in splendor. Compelling, it's a compelling reminder of his power and pomp. There beneath, we see the jarring contrast of a decaying corpse overrun by snakes and toads. The two representations illustrate the vanity of life. At the present time today, we may savor wealth, recognition, and enjoying the finer things in life. But if we wait just a while, we will pass away. And what matters now will not matter a whit then. First the riches, then the rot. First the glory, then the clay. I read of a priest who took a king to a room filled with skeletons and he said, Here among the corpses of slaves lies a king. He had made his point. In death, a king is indistinguishable from a servant. No matter how high the glory, there's always the same end of the story, and that is decay and rot. Yet despite the rot on earth, we can contemplate, because of the resurrection, the triumph of heaven. Instead of mud, we have marble. In the place of gloom, there is glory. The empty tomb of Jesus assures us that we need not fear when our own tomb is finally put to use. Because his tomb is empty, we need not fear when ours or our loved ones is full. Let us pray. Lord, I know how those Emmaus disciples felt. Sometimes it seems that hope and goodness has vanished. We live in a world that is marked by darkness and depravity. And they now consider us a danger to society. But like those guys on the Emmaus Road, I pray this morning that our hearts would burn within us. I pray your word today would be driven into our lives and change us. Revive us, O oh God, for there is no help in none other. We ask it in the name of our resurrected King. Amen. This being the